welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I am one of your hosts, Miss Melmoy. I'm the other host, Mr. Craigers. And we've got some big news <laughs> that you probably <laughs> already know about. Um, if you don't, uh, suddenly everyone's an expert on this topic, I've realized you in the guys. past two days. Everyone's you like, guys. did you hear? Yes, we all heard. Um, they have, as far as we can tell captured the golden state killer slash aka eons uh, aka that's... all the things eon stands for aka <laughs> joseph james d'angelo jr what jr <laughs> uh as he is now named uh well not now named but you know what i mean um, you guys, holy crap guys <laughs> you guys it has been an insane couple of days <laughs> Ooh. Um, four days as of the time of this recording since the arrest. I was basically like hovered over my phone at work for between like noon and like basically the end of my day. Yeah. Um, I accomplished nothing nothing. at work. They're like, so what are you working on? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was, I was on my phone. I was just, I had everything up on the computer watching the press conference, just total neglecting everything. Um, And I had the wonderful joy of, you know, some coworkers who were into true crime, but like a lot of people weren't familiar with this case. We're kind of like, in the couple days afterwards, we're like, oh, did you see this? I don't really, like, do you know anything about it? And I was like, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) The story of my people. (laughs) The story of my people, it's it's crazy and it's weird, es- like especially even just in the context of the show, right? Yeah. Because we have brought up we just recently I, talked about, or this. I have brought up, or yeah, we have brought up together this case in the last like three or four episodes straight, talking yeah, about. It's come up. We've been like so. Another thing about I'll be gone in the yeah. dark is. Well, yeah, either referencing Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, or talking about um, It's Not Over, the um, investigation discovery documentary that they did. At, for, and then, then all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. Um, because the day before, her one of her co-writers tweeted out saying, Keep your eyes on the news tomorrow, basically. We've got a big announcement. And nobody really clocked that too much, like, I don't think. And then all of a sudden, you know, the big announcement is like, oh, we've arrested somebody um, in connection with the case. And everyone was like, oh, my God. Um, Absolute insanity. And uh, they didn't say much initially, and we'll get into what they said initially, and basically what's come out since then, and how... They zeroed in on this fellow, but what timing, eh? What time? It's crazy. Guess what's shooting right back up to the top of the bestseller list? It's so crazy. (laughs) Right, and we were both talking about how we read the book, and Mm -hmm. da-da-da-da-da. We put up our our reviews on Goodreads within, like, two days of each other. I think maybe (laughs) at the end of last week. I think so. It It was super recently, and we were like, oh. Yes, because I read it it over the course of, I think, 24 hours when Mr. Eric was in the hospital. You did. You busted through that. Um, And, you know, he's, he's been out of the hospital for, like, I think, like a week ish a week and a half maybe two weeks yeah so we were just doing all of this stuff um and everyone's of course, updated their their reviews on goodreads 
Yeah. I've yeah. been like, update. Oh my God. Oh my God. I, I haven't looked at that page actually. I should go back and look. That's so crazy. Yeah, the, the first review said update 426 2018. <laughs> <laughs> and the one oh. right underneath of it was like ETA four twenty five eighteen in the most holy crap hopeful balling kind of way. It's fucking insanity, you guys. It's fucking insane. Honestly, like, and I know it sounds so corny, but like, I was getting like a little bit choked up at work, like hearing some of the things people were saying, and like basically people talking about letter to an open letter to an old man. Yes, um, and which we will get to. Yes. Which is figures in the very beginning of my review, so I feel pretty prophetic that that's the line that I picked. <laughs> I think I did this, guys. Twas I. Um, but yes. All so right, calm down. This whole thing. <laughs> um, I, yeah. So where where do we want to start with this? Um, first of all, before we do that, let's talk about some horror headlines because there's a really good one that Mr. Craigers has been chomping at the bit about. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what have you been chomping at the bit about? Bunnies. Bunnies are involved. Movies about bunnies. Trailers before movies about bunnies. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's right. So absolutely insane. So it was at, was it at CinemaCon? No, it was at a Australian... Oh, no! Oh, it was actually no, at... CinemaCon like... was the thing I texted you about, about um, the it trailer. Was, okay. About, it was at a God. regular old movie theater. It <laughs> makes it even more horrifying. It was at a regular old movie theater, and where was it? You said Australia. Australia. Okay, so as most of you guys probably know, as moviegoers, if you are moviegoers, and you probably are, if you're listening to a podcast that primarily covers movies, <laughs> when you've you been super confused to the theater, the trailers. The, the previews that you see are tailored to this the to the screening that you have bought your ticket for. So it, when you go to see a quiet place, you're most likely going to see trailers for horror movies coming out within the next two to six months. When you go to see Infinity War, you're most likely to see uh, trailers for big action or superhero movies. <laughs> You know. It's odd and unusual to mix genres. But at this movie theater in Australia, do you know what, what the movie was? That it, it was were, Peter Rabbit. They were going to see Peter Rabbit. Yeah. Okay. So they were going to see I know Peter a lot about this for some reason. Um, <laughs> Twas I. The new uh, children's movie with... Uh, James Corden, I think, is Peter Rabbit. Um, James Corden's Peter Rabbit. Um, Domino Gleason is the pissed-off farmer. And Daisy Ridley is some other animal. And Jennifer Gardner, I think. Is, like she's, she's like the, the fun. She's like, oh, Peter. She's like, oh, leave him alone. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Ad so it's a, a children's movie of a classic adaptation of a classic children's character. And a trailer that was shown before... <laughs> said children's movie was the trailer for hereditary which we briefly mentioned on our last episode booze and booze um it's a movie coming out oh, relatively soon uh june 8th I, june 8th and it looks absolutely terrifying it stars the amazing tony collette 
Um, the the buzz is really ramped up for this one, and there was a very confused and very, I think, upset uh, reaction well, from this theater because of the theater because of the. So this trailer, for those of you who have seen it, is first of all incredibly disturbing, very distressing. Everyone who's seen the movie has said that's basically the movie is just very distressing and disturbing. Um. But the part that we're probably one of the best parts about this is so they're freaking out. Everyone's like, cool. So they, you know, they leave. They're really apologetic. They give the everyone free movie tickets, which have expired. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, oh, sorry. Yeah, we'll honor them until this time next year. That is like just the- a comedy of errors. The American Dad Family Land. Yes. Like they end up with the the season passes or whatever. It's like a lot of blackout dates yeah. on these tickets. <laughs> yeah. So that happened in Australia. Down under. Um, it was a strange that, juxtaposition there. Yeah, I don't think they. I don't think anyone actually got to see Peter Rabbit that day. I think they I, all just left. They probably just left. <laughs> to go is be my with guess. their families and. <laughs> Yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I yeah, think that's the only real horror headlines, considering this episode is in uh, of itself a horror headline. Unless you yeah, there's, there's other stuff going on, but I think just because of the ah uh, factor of this episode's topic, maybe we'll just leave it at one horror headline. <laughs> a really um, great choice on our and, part for uh, the one that we... And get to the topic at hand, because there is a lot to talk about. Um and I'm sure, I'm sure horror headlines for the next couple episodes will probably just be updates as we learn more. Yes. Um, so let's, I think, start. If you're unfamiliar, if you haven't maybe taken our suggestions from the last couple of episodes to either read Michelle's book or to uh, check out the documentaries or the Cold Case File episodes, we'll do an overview of the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker Golden State Killer case. Um, wow, what a mouthful. Yeah. Erons. <laughs> so Erons, which is the acronym um, popularly used among true crime enthusiasts and murderinos. Murderinos. Hey, you read it. Stands for the murder Easter- subreddit. I know yep. it's not called murder subreddit, but I like. No. Well, Eron's has its own subreddit. It does, but I just like saying murder subreddit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like as a collective term for all the serial killer subreddits. <laughs> the serial killer subreddits, the murder subreddit, murder subreddit. I like it. So the East Area Rapist was um, a map, a criminal who began his crime spree in Sacramento and the surrounding suburbs in 1976. Um, And if you know anything about Sacramento, now I've never been there, so no tea, no shade, but Sacramento is, from what you read, a strange place, very flat, very not what you think of stereotypically when you think of uh, California. Um, and a place that a lot of people have written about gives off some bad vibes, some bad juju. Um, 
And the suburbs surrounding Sacramento, which is primarily where the attacks occurred, are very much, from what I understand, that um, Lynchian sort of, oh, God. Um, you know, quiet and quaint and idyllic on the surface, but with a very creepy, eerie feeling that something sinister is lurking, lurking beneath. Um, lots of, you know, lots of beige, I think, is going on. <laughs> lots of beige and pastel Going on in the suburbs. Um, one of the suburbs of Sacramento is Citrus Heights, which is where Joseph D'Angelo lived until the last couple of days. Now he lives <laughs> in a prison cell. So the East Area Rapists began his attacks here. <coughs> and his MO, as it were, was that he would begin he began by selecting his victims and performing reconnaissance on them. Um, he stalked them, evidence suggesting weeks to potentially even months before he would attack. Sometimes he would perform uh, burglaries and break-ins um, prior to his actual attacks. He would take things or move things around, open doors that were closed, turn on lamps that were, you know, off. Um, and as he got closer to the attacks, he would he would start leaving or hiding things in the house that he would need, um, rope or tape. Um, he would take the bullets out of guns. Uh, he would dismantle other weapons. Um, and he began by attacking single women. Um, and raping them, and eventually he moved on to attacking couples. And what he would do is he would wake them up as they slept by shining a flashlight in their face. Um, he would tie the woman up, or once he had moved on to couples, he would have the, the, uh, the woman tie up her husband or boyfriend or male partner, and then he would take... Um, he would take the female victim into a separate room, usually the living room, and he would tie her up there and, and he would rape her. And I think one of the most sinister details for me, and I think is maybe the detail that first like hooked me on this case when I heard about it a couple years ago, was he would take a stack of dishes mm. and put them on um, the male victim's back and say, if I hear these move... I will kill her and then I will, I will kill you, which is just so there are no words. Yeah. One of the most disturbing accounts for me, one of the early ones was a woman whose three-year-old son was in the room Ugh. and the kid, you know, had no idea what was going on and he fell asleep while all this was going on. Like he just napped out on the floor and, you know, when the East Area Rapist had left and the kid woke up, he, you know, said to his mom, he was like, is the doctor gone? You know, and yes. it's just like thinking about that in the context of like, oh, that's an adult now who's probably traumatized. Right. Obviously the, the mother as well. And that, that is such a weird, disturbing detail because there are not a lot, but there's maybe a handful of the cases where there were children present in the house yeah. and he either. He tended to lock them in a room. Like yeah. Would, would just lock them, them in a room or leave them in a corner and just tell them to stay there. Or, um, sometimes just, just, he knew they were there and he would just ignore them. Um, and the children were young enough that they slept through the attack. Um, 
but that area of the other is something odd and, and very sinister about that. Um, and, uh, and so during the attacks, m- many of the victims described how he mumbled to himself or talked to himself frequently, often in different voices. Uh, he would pretend to be uh, mentally disabled or that he was Mexican or that he was German, um, almost like a game. He pretended that he had an accomplice or that he had two accomplices, um, all in the attempt to basically throw the police off when the victims would eventually give their statements. Um, while he had his victims bound, he would move around the house, uh, taking things out of drawers. He, al- he, he always seemed to have the pretense when he began the attack that he was there for money or other valuables, and he would take things, but never to the point of... Um, it was clear that that's not what, what, why he was attacking, right? You know, he, he wasn't a burglar that just happened to take the opportunity to, to cause further harm. He was attacking to, to rape and, and later when he escalated to, to rape and then to kill. Um, I think another thing that really gets under my skin is how he would, after he was finished attacking, um, he would go somewhere else or he would get really quiet and then the victim, you know, they were face down or maybe they were even blindfolded. They thought he would have left and they would try to undo their, their, um, their bonds and get free, but he would still be there and he would suddenly reappear or he would lean down and whisper something into them. And I can't, imagining going through that a terror and a trauma like that and then thinking that you made it through and you could try to try to get out and get to help and then your attacker still being there is such a specific kind of nightmare I, I can't even imagine what that would be like um so Eventually, the East Area Rapist moved further south in California. And while there, after he had escalated to targeting couples, he um, turned to murder. He turned to killing. Uh, The rapes weren't enough. And he killed, or he, his total count is about 50 rapes and 10 or so murders for a total of 60 plus victims um, over a 10-year reign of terror, 1976 to 1986 was his last known attack. And that is just an insane number of victims. I hate saying prolific because that seems like, you know, I'm saying it's a it's a good thing, like that has a positive connotation. No, Obviously yeah. it's not, but that's like really what it is. Like, I mean, if you look at, you know, famous serial killers, like you know, you might be surprised to find it's only, quote-unquote, five victims or only a couple of victims, obviously, right. to, you know, the people who went through that, that only number is not no. only at all. One, one, you know, one victim is one too many. Yeah, but, yeah. but like, to, so to have murdered 13 people in and of itself, 13, 10 to 13 people is a lot for a serial killer. It's a lot for imagine murdering it is a lot. thirteen people. That's insane, and then to have raped you know 
50 women mm-hmm. like that's an insane number of people to have attacked and you know let's remember it's not it's not just the victims right the families of these victims mm-hmm. their lives are destroyed too yeah. you know um and it you don't just yeah you don't just destroy or break down the, the life of your victim, you completely alter and shatter the lives of everybody around them and in their lives that loves and cares for them. Um, so his terror was insane. And unfortunately for a very long time, because of his shift in geography for his attacks and because he was attacking in the seventies and eighties, at a time when police precincts did not share information across county lines, there was a very long stretch of time where no one was aware that the East Area Rapist, as he was known around Sacramento, and the original Night Stalker, as he was known in Southern California, were the same person. That link did not come about until a DNA match in the early 90s, I believe. Um, And supposedly this case is why the California DNA database was uh, developed. Um, I don't know if that's actually on the record anywhere. It is. That is, that's where the, the DNA thing, the DNA database uh, came from. Right. Um, And it's actually like a very, it's been a very successful DNA database. It's like one of the top in the country for um, cold case resolutions, basically. Obviously, after this, it might jump up there Um, (laughs) even more. Yeah, this is a big one. Yeah, no. So they didn't know this was, they were referring, that's where this term EURONS comes from. Um, Right. Because it's actually two separate acronyms because they did not realize these two people were one and the same. Uh, Mm -hmm. The ear portion being East Area Rapist, the ons portion being original Night Stalker. Yes. Um, And I'm sure most of you know, but just in case you don't, he's ONS because it's not to confuse him with Richard Ramirez, whose um, serial killer nickname, moniker, whatever, was the Night Stalker. And his his killing spree occurred um, several years after later um which is after, why that that moniker is what it is because they didn't realize yeah. until after the fact that it was the same person right yeah um, and i think um michelle mcnamara's book like makes a vague kind of postulation or at least the people in her book do that um ramirez might have been in some way emulating um the behavior of the original Night Stalker. The original Night Stalker. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, the similar, somewhat similar um, MO, as it were. Yeah. Um, so you can tell, ob- obvi- obviously, um, a very deranged, sinister um, individual. I mean, he would call his victims and taunt them and leave messages. Uh, years after his attacks. Um, there was one victim who she received a call from him in 2001. 2001. Like, that's 
that's decades after. Um, 1986 was his last attack, so. Yeah, and to still be performing some sort of psychological terror like that. Um, But all of the... uh, uh, the, all of the victims at the time, there were some things that couldn't be agreed upon. What was generally known about him during the heyday of the case was that he was lean. He was in good shape. Um, it was mentioned that he had very defined calves. Uh, he, you know, there's lots of instances where, because he liked to push the limit, right? He liked to kind of. Um, see how far he could go before it was absolutely necessary for he, him to leave the crime scene. So there's lots of instances of him like sort of almost getting caught where he would be like vaulting over fences or sprinting through people's backyards. Or like there was the sense bikes. that he was, yes, stealing bikes that, um, and then he would outpedal a police car. So there was a sense that he was definitely very much in shape um, and was using that to his advantage and that he was, Not in, I don't know if intelligent is the right word. I mean, there's there's certainly a level of that to there. Scrappiness, resourceful, and maybe intelligence, but that sort of psychopathic intelligence on a level with Bundy or or something like that. Um, And there was a, a sense that gathered as the case cases grew that um, whoever he was, he could blend in very well. Um, you know, talking to testimonies of neighbors and people who were around the scenes at the time, they'd be like, oh, there was some guy walking his dog or, oh, there was this guy and stuff or whatever. And he was just a normal white dude that fit into these quiet suburban communities where these attacks were occurring. Which is so unfortunately pervasive in the serial killer community. (laughs) It is. He was able to blend in, which is the worst thing, you know, for, for law enforcement to hear because it makes it that much harder. I think the most chilling example of, of this is, um, the story about the town hall meeting. Oh my gosh. Which now he might have been there under a very hey, different circumstance. Yes. So, so there was a town hall meeting in Sacramento, um, or in the one of the the suburbs. I can't quite exactly remember. And it was fairly well into um, the attacks. I think around thirty rapes had occurred under the East Area Rapists at this point. So there was a lot of, justifiably so, um, terror. And- panic and terror in the community. So a town hall meeting gets called to address the concerns, to give advice, et cetera, et cetera. And at this meeting, which sort of, I think it kind of became a public forum as well. A man stood up and he challenged how, not necessarily challenged law enforcement, but just challenged how this could happening. Basically he was like, I don't understand how a man can, you know, could let another man break into his home and, and rape his wife while he's, you know, right in the next room, right next to him, doesn't do anything to stop him. I just, I don't understand that. A couple weeks later, or maybe it was a couple months, I'm not, I don't remember the gap. Um, that man and his wife 
became victims of the East Area Rapists. Um, they were attacked. And so they knew he was at that meeting, um, which is great information. But of course, when you see pictures and stuff or whatever, it's, you know. Everyone was at that meeting. Every, everyone was at that meeting. Um, and people have truly, like, taken taken a, a magnifying glass and dug deep into those photos and that meeting, just trying, they're like, they're like he has to be there. He was obviously there. The, the you know, coincidence is, is, is too much to rule out. And um, knowing what we know now, he, yeah, he was there, but um, he might not have been in that picture. And there's a very unfortunate reason why. Um, so... Do we want to talk about um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark now? Yeah, we can go through this chronologically. Sure. Uh, Miss Mel, do you want to give, let me be like a brief, do you want to, or do you want to start brief, a brief brief on it? Um, yeah. So Michelle McNamara, um, I w- it's difficult to describe her involvement in all this and her interest in it without... <laughs> sounding like one is almost criticizing her because she was obsessed with it like she very much was um but like with like the the best intentions with it um yeah Yeah. i mean she for whatever reason um latched herself onto this story she was a true crime so she was a screenwriter um she was a true crime writer and she had a very popular true crime website true crime diaries um which i read i mean i read i used to read posts on that yeah it was a big it was a big um i'm sure many of you guys listening have too like hub for people in the community because she started out on other forums and would talk to people and she mentioned having to weed through the people who were serious about this and the people who were just you know, weirdos about it, and eventually started her own website where she would do posts about cold cases and she had like an encyclopedic knowledge of this stuff. Uh, like she would talk about how somebody could introduce themselves and she'd be able to immediately associate them with some sort of cold case or missing persons case from wherever it was that they were from, which mm-hmm. she acknowledges. She's like, yeah, like that's probably not the best way to like be thinking when you're meeting someone for the first time. But she just like, she, for whatever reason could do this. And she said, she goes back to having read, um, in cold blood at like age 12 and just Mm. that was her thing like everyone latches onto their thing and that was her thing was was cold cases and true crime i guess cold cases are part of true crime but you know what i mean um so she became very very interested in this this golden state killer or he wasn't called that at the time obviously um but this iran's case um and spent decades of her life um researching this she's the one who come came up with the moniker golden state killer um so you know when people people were pointing out at the um the press conference even though it was mentioned it was it was commented that her book had no effect on the case every time they said golden state killer well she had some influence well that's at least yeah um, yeah (laughs) we should acknowledge that much but uh, so she comes up with this moniker. She follows breadcrumbs and 
and you know puts dots together she worked very intimately with various um professionals on the case who like had become you know just her professional friends that she would just call or send emails like she would send suspects to some of them and they would check them out in the dna database and they would discuss theories because there were law enforcement officials who were working on these original cases who were just you know, so haunted by the fact that they'd come so close so many times to catching this guy and they just could not do it and they kept hitting walls and roadblocks. So she wrote a piece, I think it was in the LA Times. Um, it was in the LA something. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. Some sort of LA something um, called, is it In the Footsteps of a Killer? Yes. Um, where she first started writing about her publicly writing about outside of like true crime diary and that sort of thing yeah um, and that's what drew a lot of people to the, yeah the case in the first place was this this open letter where she was like this is a thing that happened and nobody's talking about it and it's super scary and horrifying and people kind of drummed up a bit of interest um and she continued working on it she decided she was going to write a book um basically because she had so much information at this point and she just wanted to get it out there because the point was to you know get eyes on this stuff um, yeah. and share her research. Um, so she started work on the book that eventually became known as I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, while continuing to do active research, um, she chronicles both her research, the story, and then some of her own life things that play into stuff that she faces personally. Um, but mm. a lot of elements of the case you know, started to make her very uncomfortable. She was having trouble sleeping. Um, she was very just paranoid, anxious, because who wouldn't be? I mean, you're getting into, you know, and she says no, that too. Course. She's like, she's like getting into the mind of this person and having to think about them constantly. You know, it really takes a mental toll. Um, so she had a unknown to her and her family heart condition that unfortunately interacted with a... Um, mixture of sleeping a sleeping pill um an anti-anxiety and then a pain reliever that she had been prescribed um and she died very suddenly in her sleep um in 2016 uh listening to Patton Oswalt who is her husband um the comedian talk about it is you know very sad because basically um she took an early night he just said go to sleep you know I'll take our daughter to school in the morning, you know, sleep in. Um, and she went to bed and he took their daughter to school in the morning and he got a phone call, I guess. I'm not sure if he came home or he got the phone call. I can't remember, but unfortunately she passed away, um, before the book was completed. So her writing partners, uh, Patton Oswalt and several other people got together to take what she had already written and then piece together remaining outline chapters of the book from her notes, um, from blogs and that sort of thing. Okay. Like you'll see in the book too, like it'll pre preface certain chapters with, um, this was pieced together with your faces. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. My um, computer was being weird. Gotcha. Um, but it'll say this was pieced together with X, Y, and Z, or this was written um, you know, completely after Michelle, it gets to a certain point yeah. where the last bit that was written by her ends and then, um, right. her writing partners take over and say, 
their bit um and then it ends with this and then Patton Oswalt obviously has an afterward Gillian Flynn has the foreword it's actually she's mm-hmm. such a fangirl it's pretty great I know that's so funny um she talks about meeting her at a convention and just basically being like starstruck um but Patton Oswalt has uh, a great little uh afterward that he wrote and then the book everything all ends with um Michelle McNamara's letter to an open or open letter to an old man, mm-hmm. um, which is her writing to who she thinks this killer is. At this point, she thinks he's an old man, um, and she's you know pegged who this person is in her mind. And basically, um, if I pull up, I think we should read it at the end. My handy dandy. I won't tell you how it ends. Never mind. That's good because I have to pull up my handy dandy thing anyway. Um, But it's a very powerful thing that you can read for yourself and we'll get to at the end. So basically she writes this book. Um, It comes out, I think it came out in March. It was either late February or, or, yeah, or March. It came out like this, this, like a month. February 27th, 2018. It came out February February 27th. Yeah. So the book's been out for two months Exactly as at the time of this recording. Good for the book. Um, and yeah, that was great, Michelle. Um, and it's expertly written. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, like when you read like some true crime articles or books and stuff or whatever, it's sort of just like cold, hard facts, mm-hmm. you know, very detached. Hers is not like that. Like you can tell, um, you can see the empathy behind it. You can see the heart and the passion that she had for this case behind it and her, her great sympathy for the victims um, while still maintaining um, a certain level of, of professionalism that I'm sure was hard for her. I mean, she was an amateur detective after all, you know, she wasn't trained the way. Sure, um, locking it up. Yeah. A police officer might be trained um, to, What's to interesting, a certain level of distance from the case. Um, what's interesting for me in the tone of it, because you're right, like she doesn't have that distance that other people have. I mean, obviously, if they go home at night, they probably don't have it all that much either. But they, the way she portrays them is they are very much these professional people. And she acknowledges her own, you know, like just insane, willful interest in this case um, as an amateur detective as a true crime writer but what's interesting is is ultimately you know and a lot of people have pointed this out in their own reviews of the book is that the book seems to be telling two stories because it's telling the story of eons it's telling this true crime story but it's also telling the story of this woman who's trying to hunt him down from her as she says from her daughter's bedroom (laughs) Yeah. In the opening she's, chapter. She's very open about her obsession with the case and the dangers that the potential dangers that she faces with that obsession and sort of um, how she walks that fine line and, and when she stumbles on that line. And, and as a result, it becomes what all really great true crime accounts are about, right? Not just the case or the killer or the victims, but about um, the people hunting them and, and, 
and the effect it has on them and the, the human side of every, everybody and everything involved. Um, and, and it's excellent. And, um, and Billy Jensen, who was a friend of hers and is a journalist, Paul Haynes, who was her researcher, who is referred to as the kid in the book. Um, I think they did an excellent job of wrapping things up and just sort of, you know, presenting the rest of the information without trying to like mimic Michelle's style or yeah, no, over, overshadow very, what she was saying. They're just like, here's kind of like the rest of what she had. Yeah. They're very open about the parts where they basically have to step in and finish this last little bit. I mean, they're open about the parts too, where they say this was pieced together from the writings that we had of hers. Um, but the last couple chapters are completely written by these people, um, which they acknowledge and they, you know, they say, you know, we're doing our best with this. This is what we think Michelle might have wanted to say or wanted to point out or wanted you to know kind of before the end of this. But um, it's it's great because it's just everyone who contributed to the book from the forward to the afterward to um, her researcher uh, and partners like they just never they had nothing but like you know just immense respect for for you know everything that she was doing um which you know speaks to you know because it's easy to look at this and kind of and Patton Oswalt brought this up on um oh. Twitter uh how she's what was it he he compared her to he said she wasn't what's her face from Silence of the Lambs um because people were complaining. Jodie Foster. Yeah, like people were complaining about how like nobody really acknowledged her in the past couple of days, and he's like, "That's okay. Like that wasn't what she wanted. We all know the truth." Yeah. She was. I forget who he said that she was. I could pull up the tweet, but. <laughs> yeah, and she was. She was. She was very um, open and vocal about. She's like, I. I don't need to solve this. You know, I just want it solved. Um, and and you do get that sense. She's not in it for the glory. She's not in it for any sort of credit or cachet. She just, it's something that has haunted her in the way that it has haunted these people in California and these investigators. And she just wanted it solved. Yeah. Um, and I don't know there's something obviously very beautiful and obviously very sad about that. Um, Patton Oswald tells, there's a couple interviews with him that I've seen where he tells some pretty rough stories about um, like how she would break down like really bad nights um, and really rough mornings where he would just find her crying um, because she's trying to follow these leads and they're, they're going nowhere and she's hitting dead ends and, and she's just so overwhelmed. But then how inspiring it was when he would see her like get right back on the horse and be like, okay, well, we have this other lead now. And I have to check this out now. Um, which is badass as fuck. Yeah. You know, I mean. <sighs> he, um, it, he ends his afterward with this great little story, you know, because he was talking about it. He was like, yeah, no, I'm a single dad and it is what it is. And. You know, you have good days and bad days. Um, and he was talking about how this 
one of the Christmases they had since um, his wife passed, he had written, like, he had written a note as Santa Claus to his daughter and, like, put it on top of one of her gifts. And she opened the gift and she was like, oh, this is great. And, you know, had the note and yada yada. And then she turns to her dad and she's like, dad, daddy, uh, why do you and Santa Claus have the same handwriting? And he goes... (laughs) He says something to the effect of, well, I'm raising another, or I, you know, Michelle's great contributions to the world are this book and giving the world another great detective. Um, hmm. Which is really sweet. Also, That is very sweet. R.A.P. Santa Claus in that house, I suppose. <laughs> Hopefully not of our listeners. No. <laughs> yeah, no, Santa Claus, yeah. Um, but didn't like, okay, but like, didn't you, when you were reading I'll Be Gone in the Dark, like I, I felt that frustration that Michelle was feeling obviously because of Michelle's dedication to this case, she felt it on a degree that you and I and many of us would never feel it. I've only, I've only even known about the case for two years. Michelle McNamara was following it for at least 10, I believe. Um, but like, it was that section kind of near the end where like three or four suspects in a row were mm-hmm. introduced and it was kind of like walking through why they were suspects and then what evidence pointed to them. And then each one ended with, and this is why they were ruled out. And I was getting so angry at all of these great leads that were just winding up dead. And I just, I didn't want to, I might've even mentioned this before. I didn't want to believe the DNA I was like, do we have to? Or like, are we sure? Because I think DNA ruled out like three or four of these guys and yeah, stuff. Yeah, who were like and perfect like, matches in every other way. And it's crazy. It's crazy when you start sitting there and you're like, we can, can we ignore the DNA? Because this, this really This fits. seems like it's it. Yes. Um, <sighs> and yet. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I started to feel that. Um, obviously not in a way that she did. Um, but she, I think her and her work with this case is like textbook definition of walking the walk. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she went to crime scenes. She tracked down witnesses and reached out to any victims that would be willing to talk to her. Um, Patton Oswalt tells a story of how she would go to the neighborhoods where the attacks occurred and she would drive around listening to um, like Spotify mixes of songs that were popular during the years that the attacks occurred. Um, Just because she felt that everything that was going on at the time would have influenced the killer. And, and she wanted to just invest herself in those, in that moment. Um, which is just, it's insane. Yeah. Um, and the one that I think really got me was the guy who, it was one of the many suspects, but it was just a guy who was so perfectly fitting to the point that one of her partner investigators ran, you know, the DNA on him because he had never seen him before. Oh, right. And it turned out that, you know, it wasn't a match. And it was just, it was like you could feel just the deflating of, Cause she was like, she was sure this guy was it. Yeah. Um, and it just, it happens so many times. Like. It's hard. I mean, 
And, and, and obviously, you know, her writing the book wasn't the end of it, you know, um, one, because she didn't finish, but like, she was, she wasn't ready to close the chapter on this part of her life. She was going to keep going until, until there was a solve. Um, and her and her team kept that up, um, after the book was finished, uh, following leads that she had on her long, long list that she wasn't able to get to, unfortunately. Uh, one of the ones that I'm curious to see if they'll eventually connect it to our now captive alleged Iran's GSK is about, um, she went out, I think with Billy Jensen to one of the houses of the attacks Mm -hmm. and they were looking at one of the fences that he had vaulted over when he was fleeing. And there was a really steep drop on the other side that they were like, well, if he knew about that, he probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but yet he did. And I like they connected it to there was a hospital nearby where like three days later, someone came in with a a leg injury Mm -hmm. and they were like really suspicious and shady about it. And they gave a fake name and then the hospital staff started to catch on. And when this individual realized that he fled. Yeah. And so like, that was one of the things that were, that she didn't get to, but she really wanted to hunt down that lead. And they, um, Billy Jensen, uh, sort of followed that through after Michelle passed away. It didn't end up uh, panning out only because the intake nurse at the time um, has passed away. But I'm wondering if they're ever going to be able to connect that because that to me seems really, really It's suspicious. like, okay, you've called the killer, but can you just go back and like make sure that was <laughs> like that specific sticking point is a big thing for me. <laughs> I just, I want to know. I mean, and that's kind of another thing, right? Yeah. Um, they've got him, but well, well, okay. We can get to this later. Um, yeah. So, 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 so the book comes out. So the book comes out February 27th. Um, we mentioned it on the podcast. That was, I think the first time recently that it's been mentioned. Uh, Mr. Craigers mentioned it as a horror headline. Um, but it's out, people were talking about it and people were like, oh, this is super messed up. We should be doing more about this. (laughs) Like, let's, what's, you know, let's, what is this? I need to, I need to investigate. I need to solve this case. I'm going to figure it out. Yada, yada. (laughs) Which, which, I feel like that might've been her intent. Yeah. Yeah. To some degree. She was, you know, just hoping to share the story, you know. At the very least. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think it's definitely very clear that she knew she was close. And that sense of knowing, like, you know, when you when you think you're so close to getting something or nailing something or figuring something out, it can be a very fatal bait. Yeah. And I think that mm. led in to her obsession because she knew she was close. Because she was right on the edge. Well, that's the thing, too. And if you read her bits, like, she had this person pegged. She mm-hmm. knew who who it was she was looking for. Not that she knew it was, you know, not to say she knew it was Joseph James D'Angelo. No, right, right, right. But she knew this type. Like, she had his persona, his his description down. 
completely. Um, and yeah, she just she had like, roadblocks. And just think about it. Like, is it not anyone's sort of secret dream to be able to solve, you know, an unsolved case or, or an unsolved murder or a missing meme. person thing? There was this great meme um, where it was like, me, I'm going to go to bed at 8 o'clock and get a good night's sleep. Me at 3 a.m. And it's a picture of, like, somebody on their phone under their covers. And it goes, <laughs> I'm going to solve the the, the Ramsey case. It's the company oh, Ramsey yeah, case. Right. I have seen that. Um, quick sidebar. Michelle McNamara was an expert on the JonBenet Ramsey case. Her posts on True Crime Diary are really thorough. Nice. Um, she, at one point, she, if you're not familiar with the JonBenet Ramsey case, one of the really ridiculous elements of that is the ransom note, which was like three pages long. And Michelle McNamara at one point was like, that ransom note is like the citizen cane of ransom notes. Nobody writes a ransom note that long. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, But anyway, but yeah, but like what, like everybody kind of, you secretly want that, right? And now with like the technology that we have, I feel like there's this huge sense in the, in the, um, true crime murderino community of like, it's not just like, it's not like a spectating sport anymore. Like you, we, we can participate. We can be these amateur detectives. We can, we can do our part to, to, to help and be active to a certain extent. You know, you guys don't go overboard, but I think she was the embodiment of that. This new modern form of, um, being into true crime. Yeah. Um, so book comes out, everyone's getting into it. Um, discussing everyone's like, Oh, you know, I think, I think we're going to do it. I think we'll eventually be able to figure this out. Um, at this point, it's been a cold case for several decades. Um, not much activity has been going on it. Um, if, if there was any, it was nothing newsworthy. Um, cause we didn't hear about it. Um, so no, but of course it also wasn't a newsworthy case. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's never been a huge. And it came at a time when there was like eighty serial killers running around. So the Pacific Northwest <laughs> and the West Coast is fucking Murder Town, USA. Murder Town, USA. Um. um so yeah, so <sighs> April. What would have this been? Uh, April 25th. 24th. 24th. Was the arrest. And then... Um, they announced that they've arrested somebody in connection to the a cold case surrounding a person known as the Golden State Killer. Everyone's freaking out. Patton Oswalt's freaking out. Um, I'm freaking out you know at who, work. <laughs> I'm freaking out. Here was... And here's what I think <laughs> cinched it for me. Reddit was excited. Yeah. And that is the sign because Reddit is set up to kill all excitement everywhere, <laughs> especially on the true crime Reddits, because it's like, you can't make this accusation and ruin this person's life without da 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 da. But Reddit was on fire. And they Reddit were was like, it's him. We've done it. They were like, it's him. This is it. And for whatever that's worth, to me, when I saw Reddit blowing up in that way, I was like, this 
this is it. We have him. Well, so when they said they made an arrest, I'm thinking it's another it's another one of those things, right? Like it's another one of those things where we've got a guy and the DNA is going to say, no, it's, it's not him. And I was like, I was setting, like, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. But I was like, I was also like preparing myself for yeah, what They're I felt just... like was the inevitable failure. Cause I was like, we've been down this road before, um, several times. So, um, but it was interesting cause Patton Oswalt was at an event where he was promoting I'll be gone in the dark in Chicago. And he was like on Twitter, he was like, does anyone have a live stream? Like he was trying to find out where he could watch it. Watch the press conference. Um, after his event, I guess he was at an airport, um, with, um, yeah, know. there's that picture of him. Yeah. Yeah, he took a it selfie. Looks like he's in a, like the terminal. Yeah. Him and um, the, I think he was there with, quote unquote, the kid. Um, I think they were doing a Paul Haynes promotion yeah. together. I just like calling him the kid. The kid, because he would show up sometimes, and she would just be like, "Yeah, the kid gave me this thing." Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were doing a promote. They were sitting like in an airport terminal waiting. Um, I guess for a flight back to L.A. because I think it was the last event that he was doing in promotion. Um. You know, and Twitter was, like, freaking out amongst themselves, and Michelle McNamara's name started trending, and, like, celebrities were getting... Like, Emmy Rossum was like, I hope that they acknowledge her. Yo. <laughs> and I was like, wow, Emmy Rossum is secretly into... It's a secret murderino. It's a secret murderino, because she, she had some stuff to say, some knowledgeable things to say about it. Um, so everyone's freaking out. No one knows, you know, stuff kind of started to, to come out. People, you know, were like, I heard this, and I heard it was going to be this. Um, I was, I was, uh, sorry, I just want to say real quick yeah. that I was with you though. Like I was excited, but I was really nervous because, you know, you want it to be true so bad and you want it so much, but think about in these last couple years, like the post serial world where true crime has boomed, like how many documentaries and stuff do you see where they just pull apart? you know, these, these convictions and, and how many false, false arrests and false this and false that, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think like the beginning of making a murderer, you know, yeah. I was thinking about that a lot because it's a press conference almost exactly like the one from a couple of days ago. And then making a murderer goes on to shed all this like questionable light on the case and stuff or whatever. And so I was, I was feeling that nervous side of things too. Yeah. The other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, you're like, <laughs> what if, what if, um, and, and, but then I, but then I started thinking, I was like, okay, but because of the high profile nature and the attention this case has gotten in the last two years, I feel like before making an arrest, they would be really sure. And they would like, or announce, even announcing it, bell check to hell. <laughs> <laughs> But what does w the word document say? Right. Are there Before any squiggly lines? And then, so then it was like, okay, I feel like they would cross all the T's and dot the I's before they arrested anybody. Or, and then I felt a bit more confident. at least announce that they had a press conference coming about the arrest. It's like, all right, you right. wouldn't be doing that unless you... You were sure. You were sure this was it. Um, press conference rolls around. They don't say much. They're congratulating themselves a lot. It was so unsatisfying. Um, a, a couple of the victims' family members did get to speak. Um, 
somebody did ask about Michelle McNamara's book because they weren't talking about it, to which they said they felt that it had no impact on the case, which the internet did not take kindly to. Um, and in recent days since the initial, oh my god, of the press conference, you know, news outlets have been mentioning her more. It's been like more like Michelle McNamara first language yeah. than the Golden State Killer. Um, there's been a lot more stuff coming out about her and the book rather than just the Golden State Killer and her as an afterward, which again, you know, wasn't her goal um, at all. But it's like when you see somebody who spent so much time on this case... Um, and was so dedicated to, to seeing it solved in any way that it could be solved. You want, you know, her name to be attached to it in some way. Um, you know, and obviously it's just very sad because she didn't get to see the Golden State Killer um, arrested. And Patton Oswalt did say that he, <laughs> he hopes to be able to talk to this guy to ask her okay. some questions that she had uh, that she wanted to ask the Golden State Killer if he was ever caught. Um, which is pretty nice. I hope he gets a chance. I also hope, I'm just furious, that Paul Holes did not get to speak at the conference. Yeah, I know. Um, if anyone if else watched, was as dedicated as Michelle McNamara. It was Paul Holes. Yeah, and if you watch the It's Not Over Yet Golden State Killer documentary and read Michelle's book, you'll know how instrumental he was in these um last few years and how closely he worked with Michelle and he is a such a precious little cinnamon bun. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I hope he gets a chance to speak with him as well. Um, and so, so things look promising. Essentially there was a 100% DNA match. They have, that seems like a good percentage. That seems like a good percentage. I feel like there's not a lot of wiggle room to be had there for that one. <laughs> So that's making me feel pretty good. Um, but yeah, you know, more information has been coming out. People have been teasing out this and, and we're getting a little bit of that. But for the most part, we still don't know a lot. Yeah. Um, we don't officially know what led them to Joseph James D'Angelo. So I've been reading some things now, I've just, yeah, which is a lot. There's out. a lot of things to be read. So the initial theory going around on the Eron's subreddit was that there was a tip. They said that officially there was no tip, um, but they did not say how that they knew to be surveilling this person. And they said that they surveilled him for a while before they made the arrest, because um, I guess they had to collect some form of DNA before they could do it. Sure. Um, but the rumor going on on Eron's was that... Um, it was actually one of his adult children who mm -hmm. he had a son and a daughter uh, and they believed it was the daughter who tipped the police. Two daughters. Maybe it was two it's not, it's not Maybe I'm making that up. Point is somebody, one of his children, <laughs> um, the rumor was tipped the police and said, I, I think you should take a look at this. And that's what led them to then surveil this guy. Um, as far as we, we don't know if that's the case, they have not said recent um, stuff that has been coming out in the past couple of days um, basically said that, I don't know if they said it or it's been theorized based on things that they've said, but basically, um, supposedly what people are saying is that they usually utilize Jedmatch um, mm. to locate this person is that 
GEDmatch is one of the many ethnicity DNA testing things you can do, but unlike Ancestry and 23andMe, it does not have a standing privacy policy that prevents law enforcement from utilizing it. Uh, That was a big roadblock in Michelle's book, was that Ancestry, 23andMe, yada yada, refused to work with police out of the respect for the privacy of their users. And, yeah, and... I think I'll be gone in the dark makes it pretty clear that Michelle feels like that's where the answer is. Yeah. She and, basically, yeah, um, yeah. They said that, you know, the answer is there and it's behind a cement door is how they described it. Yeah. And, and, you know, following, um, like I know for sure in the interview that, uh, the MFM, the my favorite murder podcast ladies do with Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes, they say that that's where they've been looking since Michelle's passing is, you know, DNA. Um, and they, they were pretty sure that that's, that's how it's going to happen. That's how it was going to get cracked. So that could, that could, um, most likely that sounds like a pretty good scenario, which that was one of the, also one of the frustrating ones was because they thought, okay. And they uploaded because this, this killer had a unique DNA, um, uh, I, I don't know what to call it, identifier, what have you. Basically, some right. segment of his DNA, only 2% of the population had. It was very, they were like, it doesn't mean anything besides the fact that it's uncommon. And should we have DNA to match it against, it should make it pretty easy to find him. To find him. So they upload it to Ancestry.com because you can't upload, you can do a way where you can just upload segment data, like raw data, um, and do it that way as opposed to like spitting in the tube. Um, right. And they did that and they had a match in the system and they were freaking out. They were and like, it was a hundred percent match. It was a hundred percent match. They're like, holy shit, this is him. Turns out another amateur investigator had the same idea. Yeah. And it was literally just the same data twice. So she was very frustrated because she was like, I can't get his spit, but if they would let me, if they would let us test what we have against what they had, but it wasn't happening. So basically what they, what I'm, hearing now is that um they did it against Jed Match and um they didn't find him in Jed Match but they found a genetic relative so they've mm-hmm. suddenly mm-hmm. narrowed their field from every single person in the United and States and that's all they needed to a single family at which point they started looking at people related to this person who seemed and to fit the bill Area. And they find this man, Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., who lives in the correct area and was um, arrested, or not arrested, I think he was just like reprimanded or whatever, on record shoplifting uh, in 1979 a hammer and a dog hammer? repellent. Dog repellent. And they said, wow, that's kind of weird. <laughs> it sure it. was, because, and because. And one of the things, I don't think we mentioned this before, but one of the things they knew about Eron's Golden State Killer was in his reconnaissance and his preps before his attack, he would often, they they thought he was familiarizing himself with the dogs mm-hmm. in the neighborhood so that they wouldn't alert anybody to his presence, that he was feeding them treats or getting to know them or being friendly or finding a way to repel them, as it were. Yeah. So the dog repellent thing. Um, and yeah, and Miss Mel, there was a record of his shoplifting because that was why he was kicked out of the Auburn Police Department. He was a cop. He 
was a cop, which fell in line to another thing that had been long suspected about Iran's Golden State Killer was that he had access to police scanners Mm -hmm. because of how well he was able to evade police when they were summoned to the crime scene or when they were out staking houses and neighborhoods trying to find him, how when they suspected that they might have, his vehicle always seemed to be parked just outside the perimeter of the the official search area. Um, Who would have access to a police scanner? Going back, if you'll remember our mention of the town hall that we believed he was at, a lot of people have pointed out that, okay, yes, that's true, but chances are he was there as a police officer. In official capacity. Um, which is even more fucked up than, honestly, than, because the theory was that, you know, he was just so obsessed with himself and what he was doing that he showed up to the town hall, right? Which is fucked up. Right. But the idea that like, he's... They, they say, yeah, right, like... He's there in like, an official capacity. Like to, criminals like to, you know, especially serial offenders, like to insert themselves into yeah. the case. Um, so he's there as a cop, right? And he sees this guy stand up and say all this stuff and decides in that moment he's... I'm going to, sh- like, I'm going to show you. Yeah. You don't know how this can happen. I'm going to show you. I'm going like, to do it to you. It's super fucked up. Uh, he did work, after he was let go, I think he worked, I can't remember if it was before or after, but he worked at two other police precincts. Yes. He also did work at a company called Sierra Hoiston Hall. Um, and that is, there were long sus- suspicions. Paul Holt, one of, it was Paul Holes' big theory was that he was somehow tied to construction. Yes, that was a huge thing. Um, and that, that, that might have had something to do with geographically why he was attacking where he was attacking. Um, so I think that's a really interesting detail about, about Joseph James D'Angelo. Um, I think one of the really chilling details that I have seen on Reddit, um, so many of the victims, uh, testified that, um, during the attacks, when he would mumble to himself, sometimes um, they were saying that he was heard saying, I'm sorry, mommy, I'm sorry, mommy. Um, And someone uh, on Reddit dug up. um, Because of course, Reddit. uh, Yeah, because of course, Reddit. um, Information about Joseph James D'Angelo, that he was once engaged to um, a woman uh, and... um, they they broke off their engagement and each married different people in 1976, um, and her name was Bonnie. And mm. one of the women, one of the um, rape victims, and her testimony said, "No, he wasn't saying I'm sorry, or um, I'm sorry, mommy, or take this mommy. He was saying I'm sorry, Bonnie, take yeah. this Bonnie." Yeah. And someone someone on Reddit like dug that up, and I'm just like, "Oh my gosh." Because Michelle would be so proud of you. <laughs> she would be so proud. And he had the um he had like a scan of the newspaper clipping, like announcing their engagement and stuff or whatever. And it's just like that detail is so amazing and it seems to fit so well, but you wouldn't like that wouldn't have you know, like counties don't keep engagement records, only marriage records. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like it takes someone to dig deep and find something like that to start connecting all these like homeland red string board kind of things. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, 
<laughs> you guys didn't see the face I was making, but you get it. Um, and, and these details and the detail, you know, about the hammer and the dog repellent, which um, many of the victims testified so, that there was a weird smell about him. I and, sent that to Craig. I was like, yeah, like a parent, because Craig like texted me. He was like, he was a cop. And I was like, yeah. Um, and then I was like, yeah, and you know, he, no. was, saying, he was a fucking cop, you know? Yeah, like, like it was in all caps. Craig was like, he was a fucking cop. And I was like, yeah, I saw that. And I was like, apparently he was let go from the force for shoplifting, dog repellent, and a hammer. And Craig was like, I just went, oh, so loud that my coworker had to come in and check if I was okay. She came into my office and she was like, are you all right? I think she thought that like I fell and hurt myself or something. <laughs> Which, didn't you emotionally? I emotionally was so angry that it was a that it was, dog. Of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. And then I start reading all these things and they're like, this is probably the dog repellent it would have been. And it has this weird smell. And many of the victims said he had a weird smell about him and they couldn't place it. It wasn't familiar. And I'm just like, get it, get it out. It was dog <laughs> repellent that he stole. And it's all these things, right? People have been theorizing for so long, and now we know. And and all these details seem to be falling into place. And and I just want more of them, you know. I want to know as much as we can. And I know that we all do. I was like, we want to know what led to it. Was was it really the DNA? Was it a tip? Was it something about this shoulder in, injury that you know we were talking about earlier? How does everything fall into place? Or do some of these details not fall into place? Tell me um, everything. This is going to be quite the trial. I want to hear this guy testify. He's probably not going to, but I, I know. And love. I guess that's, that's the thing we should we should point out and bring up right now. It, it, he is the alleged Golden yeah. State Killer, right? They have tied him with DNA, um, but obviously until a trial right. commences. Until the trial or perhaps a confession, you know. I mean, but obviously many things are falling into place. Um have you seen the the pictures of him from when he was in the Navy? Yeah. It looks very it similar. It looks exactly like two of those sketches. Yeah. It's dead on. Two of the it sketches is- that look most similar to each other look very much like this guy at the eight, around roughly the, the within the 10-year span he would have been doing this. Yes. And even if you look at him now in the, you know, in the, like, brow and eye area of, you know, this... 72 year old man he does have a very similar look about him to kind of the dead eyes of this person which did you did you also notice in his mugshot um which is very creepy by the way yeah no could they have taken a like less horrifying picture the 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 scrapes on his forehead yeah i noticed that he's got scrapes all over he's got one on the like the top of his head too yes it made me wonder if um maybe it was a bit of a rough detainment they, when they claimed that he came without... I did see that today. But I, um, they claim a lot of stuff. Did you see the thing that he said he was making a pot roast? Yeah, and they were like, they okay, we'll, we'll take care um, of it. But I, I was just wondering, because I know like a lot of times with older suspects, when they realize that the jig is up, so to speak, they'll kill themselves. Yeah. You well, know? he's um, too I, old to run like he, he used to. Exactly, and I'm wondering if it was like he might have. They claim that he came without incident, but they also yeah, they claimed do. a lot of shit. So, <laughs> Say it, it um, was... some people. Oh, but, yeah, but oh, sorry. No, you go. No, I was just. You made me think um, about how he was super in shape. Someone else was. I don't know if I saw this on Reddit or or, or a different art or an article somewhere else about he was a diver in high school. That would explain then, the calves. That was, people exactly... were really fixated on the calves, and I remember thinking that was weird because. 
a lot of different people would say like you know x y and z yada yada he was kind of this but he had like thick calves like yes and if you're a diver you have calves for days and i remember just thinking that's a really weird thing to say about someone but a bunch of different um victims were saying yeah like his calves were really like really well defined robust well and also and also the thing about um how um also who's a diver in high school Right? I mean, swim teams, but like a diving team? Really? No? Really? I don't know. I guess he would have been in high school in what? Like the 60s? Was that a big thing in the 60s? I don't know. Michelle. <laughs> I, I, yeah, let me tell you about diving in the 60s. My dissertation about diving in the 60s. You know Michelle has one, though. Diving in the 60s. She probably had her but it's also, but then it's also that thing about how, and people were wondering like, okay, so what was his background that he would be able to do these really physical things? What about his background allowed him to lie in wait and be so patient and so still? Yeah, like they talked about him crouching and crouching for, and he would do it for hours and nights and nights, just watching and waiting and stalking and planning. And they thought, well, that's, that's some sort of like military or paramilitary background to have that kind of patience. Um, or, you know, that, that specific sort of discipline, um, and then it's like, or former military, because, you know, a lot of the victims just like said, his hair was longer. And I think that ties our cop background, our law enforcement. Yeah. Um, and if you'll refer to my red string board, you will see that all the pieces are falling into place. Yeah. Um, which speaking of the red string board, I want to know if they're ever going to, prove that he was the Vizalia ransacker. Yeah, he's listed like on the Wikipedia, they list this Golden State Killer as the Vizalia ransacker. Obviously that's a theory. Yeah. But now that we have this DNA thing or possibly trying to get a confession out of this guy, you know, it's possible we could find that out too. Um, The Vizalia ransacker, I think while they never proved it was the Eurons, a lot of people have come to suspect it was was um but that was one of the first things that kind of led them to start thinking about this as oh maybe maybe this is all one person because when the Visalia ransacker was doing their thing they were like this is kind of similar to this thing we were dealing with over here and this Mm. thing we're dealing with down here Mm. um and i think it would follow the practice or the practice they um fairly proven theory of escalation in criminals, right? Yeah. Um, that as criminals continue their activity uncaught, they escalate in risk and violence. Um, mm. and, and so the ransacker was, was burglaring and like petty theft and all of those attacks happened before Iran's, which was burglary and rape. Eron's happened before ONS, which was burglary, rape, and murder. Yeah. You know, it would it would fit that pattern. Well, and they said too, I think, wasn't it, that he turned to murder because the first time it happened, it happened as a result of necessity. Right. The um the Magior murders. Yeah. He um, had to to kill one of the victims and then after that point it just escalated to where he's just he, he sought out to kill people. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, but I, 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 I think he was the ransacker. Yeah, it checks out. Um, I mean, the I only thing that should. doesn't check out for me is some of the descriptions of the ransacker. The body type, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really match, oh. but. There's that one 
in the Visalia ransacking, when, when Michelle McNamara is going through those cases of the girl who she finds him looking up out of the bushes underneath her window. Yeah. Which is and, my nightmare. <laughs> yes. And she talks about like the pale, like moon, like yeah. texture of his face, just stare. And then how he like, I don't remember her phrase. Now I'm imagining book. this old man's mugshot staring, from, staring up from the bushes yeah. and how he like, skittered away you know into yeah. the night or whatever like i don't know it was like, like skittered away like a lizard or something like that and i was like i'm very upset right now yeah. you know what's <laughs> like, funny is in high school i was at a friend's house um and our other like another high schooler who lived in the neighborhood um came to the house but instead of knocking on the door like a normal person he decided he was gonna stare at us through the kitchen window now we all had very separate reactions um, my one friend, Gary, uh, would have been the first to go because he froze. He just, he was the closest to the window and he froze. He didn't know what to do. I had another friend who her reaction, it was her house. Um, uh, it was that person that house. Her action was to grab a knife. Yeah. She like legitimately grabbed a knife yes, mama. at the kitchen. Meanwhile, her and her sister, her sister and I were gone. We were out yeah. of the kitchen. We were halfway across the house. And I was like, it's good to know that in situations like how we would react. Just a little tidbit in case you come across. That's so <laughs> funny. Doing that to you. Um, but people have been... I had a... I was... No, go ahead. I had an instance like that in middle school with a group of friends, but I was on the other end of things. I was the person that did the scaring. Oh. <laughs> we were all over my friend's house that night and we were watching The Ring mm -hmm. and... Like half of the group got like too scared, so they went in the other room and started playing like Yu-Gi-Oh. I think, <laughs> and um, I went, uh, I went out the sliding glass door into my friend's backyard, and we came up with this little plot. And my other friends like went to our friends whose house it was, and we're like, uh, Stephen, I think like your neighbor's dog is in the backyard, and he's like, Oh, that happens all the time, <laughs> stupid dog. So he comes back and he like opens the sliding glass door and he's peering out into his dark backyard and then I like jumped out <laughs> I think I just said boo and his reaction was so priceless <laughs> he like clutched his chest like an old man and like fell back on the couch and just started heavy breathing <laughs> and the rest of us just died laughing um Oh, my other friend who was behind him, though, like pulled a U and just sprinted out. <laughs> no, of the I was out and like up the stairs. I think it was. Um, I was halfway across the house. Um, earlier that <sighs> day, we had been like playing like apple baseball, but it was like in a park that was technically closed. So the cops showed up, and I took off running for no reason. We're like, nope, we weren't doing anything wrong. Um, like everyone else was like, whatever. And they were like, well, how did you get all the way over them? What are you doing? Over there? I was like, the cops showed up. So I ran. So we know that my flight is much stronger than my fight. But, um, so in the recent days, um, some stuff from people who know D'Angelo and his creeping bush ways, um, have oh, like the neighbors. Yeah. Have said some stuff. His brother-in-law mentioned that actually during the original, run of these murders he recalled D'Angelo bringing up the East Area Rapist in conversation a couple times 
Um, mm. And a neighbor of him currently said that um, he was kind of, he would be prone to, like, he would have these violent, angry outbursts a lot. Yeah, um, that he would shout, like, fuck occasionally yeah. like at neighbors and kids who he thought were getting too close to the lawn. Yeah. So um, there's a lot to be learned there. There's there's so much. There's so much, right? Yeah. Um, to to still learn, to still connect. Um, oh, you, and as per your military thing as well that you mentioned oh, earlier, yeah, he was in the it. navy. Right, he was in the yeah. navy. Yes. And then he was in law enforcement. And then he was and in law enforcement. And that's and what was suspected. Yeah. Um, just because of the way he behaved, the way he executed the crimes, leaving nothing behind, no fingerprints. Um, some of the victims said he often wore black fatigues. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, that sort of discipline and that sort of dedication, like, you know, Michelle McNamara and Paul Holes talk about how they were convinced that he wasn't this genius super criminal, right? He was just very practiced. He did, like, dry run-throughs and stuff and, and did that sort of disciplined research and figuring out avenues and exits so, so that um, when the time came for him to do what he intended to do, he would get away with it. Um, it's like spooky. I think you were, it, it is. And you were talking about this sort of near the top of the episode. I think like you don't want to be respectful when you talk about oh, him yeah, and yeah. what he did. And yet you have to acknowledge the sort of diabolical brilliance of Iran's GSK, and I think of all criminals like him if we ever hope to catch them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, and that's, um, I can't remember, was it Silence of the Lambs where they talked about this? Where basically, like, there's a fine line between, like, admiration for the sake of admiration and, like, acknowledgement of like just sheer objective intelligence with which someone operates in doing these sorts of things and kind of not allowing yourself to fall into the wrong side of of that line and and michelle i think talks about that in the book and and even talks about it with a little humor there's that part where she she's like talking about Euron's Golden State Killer and and what he was able to do is a little bit about talking too much about your ex. Yeah. Like, you kind of go on, you kind of, you know, she would say she would go on and go on and then have to be like, yeah, but he's a piece of shit, so. Yeah, but, like, just to wrap this up, like, he's terrible. Yeah, just to, like, just to, like, you know, make sure we we put that out there. But it's almost like it's like you're looking at it as, like, a frustrating sense. You're like, fuck, this guy is doing this and that and this other thing to prevent himself from being caught, and it's driving me insane insane and it was and you see how it drove michelle insane you know um and the obsession um pat nozzle did a good interview it might have been when he talked to the mfm ladies um where he's he mentioned that michelle would constantly reread robert graysmith's book about hunting the zodiac killer because she was drawn to how similar the obsessions were. And yeah. um, 
how unaware Graysmith was about how unhinged he was becoming in his unhealthy pursuit to try and catch the Zodiac Killer. And Michelle herself trying to be aware of the dark places she was going to and making sure she didn't stay there too long, which I think is such an interesting detail for him to reveal because in the end, Michelle's book is so similar to Robert Graysmith's book about the Zodiac Killer because it's not just about the killers, it's about the obsession and the story of the people who are hunting these killers as well. Um. Yeah. Um. I. And I want. Sorry. What? No. Go for it. I just wonder. There's so much still to wonder, right? And it's been striking me so much as we've been doing this. Like, we have the answer allegedly. Allegedly. Most Asterisk, but probably. Um, but there's still so much, like, I desperately want a confession from him. I just want to hear no, what he has to say. I do want to hear what he has to say. I want, like, one, I want to know, and, like, what what prompted this? Was was it Bonnie? Was it, was it something about... What the fuck was going on? What the fuck was going on, you know? What... What about um, the areas or the people he targeted? What was it about them? Did, did, did something pull this dark monster side of you out? You know, um, it's clearly, I think, what he was doing was not about sex. It was about power, yeah. right? It was about violating safe neighborhoods and hurting um, women and couples and and. Um, Yeah, shattering that sense of yeah, because it was never like peace. It only became about murder when it absolutely had to be, and then once it was, like you know, that's what he escalated to. But for the longest time, for many many years, like he was not killing people. He was breaking into their homes. He was, you know, doing something that you might argue is probably worse than death for what end up ends up happening to a lot of these families. Um, you know, and he would take little souvenirs from them which I did read that they are searching his house um, in the next coming days, specifically looking for for that these trophies that he took. Um, I don't know if they're going to find any, but... It's been a long time. Yeah. But they say that... If they do, these, then, like, these, that's... These types of people do tend to hold on to those yeah. things. And if they it's do, like, to... that's it. Like, obviously, the DNA says what it says but like to me it's like okay if they find the stuff then that's it um even though the dna has already said like it's him it has to be him um but i think so i think yeah and some things we're gonna have to let go of obviously i think whether or not there's a confession yeah um not everything can be revealed to the public for various reasons. Um, are we going to find him in those photos from the town meeting? Probably not. My guess is he wasn't in them as an audience participant. You know, those photos were taken from the stage, which is where the law enforcement would have been. Um, oh, which, did you see the thing? What Patton Oswalt was talking about. So he's been on like the book tour, right? Yes. Um, 
And he was at Powell's, the big famous bookstore in Portland. Mm -hmm. And um, he was saying how when he goes and does readings at most places, it's sort of just like an in the round type of thing. But at Powell's, they had him against a wall. And they told him that they do that at true crime readings at Powell's so that they can photograph the crowd because Mm. um, apparently when Anne Rule the um, famous true crime writer who knew Ted Bundy, Stranger Beside Me, would do readings at Powell's. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, would come and sit in the audience and listen. Mm-hmm. And so now they they always take pictures of the crowd um, at true crime readings there in case, you know, something like that should ever happen again. And it's like, so there is, it could happen. It's happened. It just might not be in this case, you know, yeah. and I, that's something we might all have to let go of. Yeah, certain certain things like that. Um, but yeah, and I mean, again, the biggest drawback for me is like, you know, it. so one of the great things that was said during the press conference um, was from, I don't know, I couldn't keep, I was watching live feeds of it because I was at work. Um, yeah. So, you know, I was trying to keep track of who was who and what was what. Um and one of the investigators, cops, whoever, somebody uh, said of this person, um, he won't, he can't climb through the window. He's in jail. He's history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, oh, like, that's like what really got me at work. I was like, I'm going to start crying at work and nobody's going to like, <laughs> they're going to be like, what's the matter with you? And I was like, I'm crying because of the serial killer. Um you know, and it was just, <laughs> what? And it's, <laughs> what? Um, you know, and it's hard to imagine because it was a very microcosmic thing. For Sacramento and those areas that were afflicted, it was the boogeyman. Like, it literally mm-hmm. was people, like, didn't want to go to sleep at night. And, and you know, it's tough to imagine having not been there, like, how terrifying this was for the community. That's, I was just about to use that exact word of boogeyman, and I think you're right. You know, it was his specter haunted California, but in a way, the idea of the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker and the Golden State Killer is the ultimate boogeyman for everyone. Because I think, you know, with most um, serial offenders, rapists, killers and stuff or whatever, most of us, we say, well, I would never be in that position. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I would never um, get in a stranger's car or I would never um, I or I'm not a I'm not a sex worker. So, you know, Gary Ridgway couldn't have targeted me or I um, I don't part my hair down the middle. So Ted Bundy wouldn't have been interested in me, you know, but. With Iran's Golden State Killer, this one, it it could have been you and it was us, you know, everybody sleeps in their house. Everybody sleeps in their bed. Everybody sleeps. Yeah. And that's, I think, what makes the idea of him so frightening and so terrifying. Um, He wasn't picking, you know, blonde women, brown-haired women. He was just picking people. Exactly. Um, People who spoke out at uh, town hall meetings, unfortunately. Right. And I think that's maybe another reason why the fervor and the excitement in the true crime murderino community around 
D'Angelo's arrest is at the pitch that it is. Um, this is like this is like the Super Bowl for mur- murderinos, yeah. you know, like it's over in theory, allegedly. Oh, we have to keep saying allegedly for probably the next two years until this goes to trial. I know, right? Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, so the bit that Mr. Gregor's wanted me to save till the end of this um, was the ending to Michelle McNamara's uh, open letter to an old man um, that closes out the book um, the following. One day soon, you will hear a car pull up to your curb, an engine cut out. You'll hear footsteps coming up your front walk, like they did for Edward Wayne Edwards. 29 years after he killed Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew in Sullivan, Wisconsin, like they did for Kenneth Lee Hicks 30 years after he killed Lori Billingsley, I can never say it, Billingsley in Aloha, Oregon. The doorbell rings. No side gates are left open. No long past leaping over your fence. Take one of your hyper-gulping breaths, clench your teeth, inch timidly toward the insistent bell. This is how it ends for you. You'll be silent forever and I'll be gone in the dark. You threatened a victim once. Open the door. Show us your face. Walk into the Walk light. Walk into the light. And we now get to see his face. We know. Um, we have you. It's, again, just a reminder how unfortunate it is that Michelle McNamara never did. But I know her point was <sighs> to get him caught no matter what. Um, I, such obviously, a, she did not expect to pass away before that happened, but such a magic to her writing. Yeah, it's in you know it's not flashy. She's not trying to show off, but it's still so beautiful. Um, so that that's where we are, guys. That is the serial rapist, the Golden State Killer, the original Night Stalker, allegedly. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. Um, this is, of course, just our quick summary of events. Um, there's tons of more information out there. Um, definitely check out Michelle's book. Definitely check out It's Not Over Yet. Except now it is. Definitely. For much better reasons. (laughs) For much better reasons. Definitely you just like Google, Reddit, all kinds of amazing things. Videos and interviews are cropping up every day. Um, HarperCollins, who published Michelle's book, they put up a three-episode podcast series just about how the book was um, sort of assembled and how everything came together. You can hear interviews with Michelle on that podcast. It's pretty short. Um... There's all kinds of uh, good stuff out there. Um, yeah. And it's not all, you know, super depressing. Doom and gloom. It's not all doom and gloom. There's a, did you see the, Pat Oswalt told the, um, there, when they had dinner with Steve Martin? No. <laughs> I guess Michelle was talking to him about what she was working on and and um, how she like got this huge list of suspects and how she rules them out da 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 and she's like you know technically Tom Hanks would have been a suspect 
because he was in California at the time of these attacks and da 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 da. And she's like, but his filming schedule for Bosom Buddies rules him out. And that's why we know it's not him. And I guess Steve, she considered Tom Hanks a <laughs> Yeah, She was like, yeah, but the, the filming schedule for Bosom Buddies rules him out. And I guess Steve Martin was like, does it? <laughs> does it though? Are we sure? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of fun moments like that out there too. It's not all the most depressing thing that you've ever encountered in your life. Um, but it's close. But it's close. Yeah. So with that being said, um, some contact information. You can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can tweet us at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels out of that splatterchatter. But if that is too tough for you to think about, just search it and we will pop right up. Um, you can Instagram us at splatterchatter666. Dot nothing because it's Instagram. Um, Craig's blog <laughs> is <laughs> splatterchatter666.blogspot.com. You can tumble with us at splatterchatter666.tumblr.com. Or no, it's just splatterchatter.tumblr.com. I lied to you on that one. splatterchatter.tumblr.com. No six. Oh my. Six. Oh my. Breaking brand form. Um, and know. Mr. Craigers has all the information for you about our Patreon. You can find the Patreon at patreon.com slash splatterchatter666. On the Patreon is all the information about the show that you are currently listening to right now. About your lovely hosts, Mr. Kriggers and Miss Mel. That's us. And our pitch as to why we would love um, pledges and monthly donations from you guys, our lovely listeners. If you choose to donate to the show, there's three tiers at which you can do so. One, five, or ten dollars and various perks that you'll get. Um, including a subscription to The Howler, which is the Splatter Shatter monthly newsletter, uh, uh, potentially a horror Q&A where you could submit a question that Miss Mel and I will address and answer at the top of the next show, or you could even be a show programmer, which will allow you to pick an entire t- episode topic that Miss Mel and I will cover. There's all the information about that and more at... Once again, patreon.com slash spiderchatter666. Please help us keep up the creep. Yes. <laughs> and I think that is everything, guys. Um, once this episode is up, be sure to look on the blog. Um, I will post both mine and Miss Mel's Goodreads reviews for I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, so you can check that out over there. Please feel free to comment and send us your own reviews of I'll be gone in the dark. Um, this is going to be in the, uh, the public eye for quite some time, I think. Yeah. And last but not least, if you guys have a moment, please consider giving us a rating and a review over on iTunes to keep us in the charts, keep us popping up when people are searching for horror podcasts. We would love that and appreciate it. Um, you can also do the same on SoundCloud. Those are the two places you can find us. Now, we're going to close out on our Golden State Killer episode for now. Next, we'll be coming at you with um, some very witchy fun. Oh, yes. Um, Be on the lookout for that. And until that point, we are going to remind you guys to keep up the creep. And until we chat again, we will say au revoir. Adios.
and das vidanya